Digital media, iTunes podcast, smartphone apps, and from the online website. From Community Broadcasting Services, the talking newspaper for Coventry. This is Outlook. Hello and welcome from me, Nigel Hewin, to this edition of Outlook, which is being recorded on Wednesday, the 30th of November. But just before we go on, just to say apologies if you get this a bit late. Post office are having their shenanigans of pe- with people on strike and things, so we anticipate this might not arrive to you until a little later than you usually expect it. So, what have we got in this week's programme? Well, firstly, Margaret's going to visit the one of the oldest pubs in Coventry, the Golden Cross. Uh, we found out about the history of telegrams. Uh, do you remember those little boys who used to run around on bread bikes and motorbikes delivering telegrams to, to our houses? Well, Bill will tell us all about that uh, in his article. And of course, with Christmas coming up, one of the favourites is Quality Street, and uh, Sheila's been looking at that to find out more about it. Uh, probably the origins, I don't know, but certainly the flavours we all love. And there's a man called Thomas Cubitt, uh, and he's done some rather wonderful things at uh, um, Buckingham Palace, and Queen Camilla uh, takes centre stage on one of his most famous creations in an article uh, which is written by Sue. I said read by Sue, I shouldn't say written by Sue, read by Sue. Uh, and uh, finally, the uh, nature writer... Uh, which is a story by Ali, will be ending this program. Um, but there is also a little piece from Elaine somewhere, which I can't find here at the moment. What did you tell me about? Things, no, I beg your pardon. Nature Writer is by Elaine. That is about sheep shearing uh, in, in right, right back in the summer. The story by uh, Ali is... Uh, things that go bump in the night. But, of course, we've got all the other things in uh, the early part of the programme. That is your uh, report from the centre here, postbag, sport, of course, which is a contentious article. But, as always, we're going to start with the news with Elaine and myself. Outlook News. Postbag. Prices are set to increase for passengers using services in Coventry, Nuneaton and Warwickshire. Stagecoach has been facing increased costs of its services, which has led to the hike in tickets, the firm said. The changes will be implemented this Sunday, December the 4th. Stagecoach has seen a 29% increase in maintenance costs, with the price of tyres increasing by 18%. Over the same period, utility costs have shot up by more than 40%, including an increase of 16% in the last year alone. Stagecoach has also increased the pay packets of its employees in line with the cost of living crisis. Mark Whitelocks, Managing Director for Stagecoach Midlands, said, Stagecoach has consistently delivered some of the lowest ticket prices in the country and we are committed to continuing to keep fares as low as possible for our passengers. But businesses such as Stagecoach have been facing significantly increased costs, which continue to put pressure on fares. We have worked hard to absorb as many of these costs as possible. Single fares for adults will range from £1.70 to £5.60, and for a young person from £1.10p, to £4.40. 
£2.20 single fares in transport for West Midlands area are frozen, along with the special £2.20 single on Route 48C. In Coventry, adults will be a day rider at £4.20, a Flexi 5 for £16.80, a 7-day Meg rider, £15.20, and a 28-day Meg rider, £57.70. For a young person, the day rider will be £3.20, the Flexi 5, £12.60, the 7-day Meg rider, £11.40, and the 28-day Mega Rider, £43.30. Filming has begun in the city for a brand new TV drama about how two-tone music exploded in Coventry. Stephen Knight, the Oscar-nominated and BAFTA-winning creator of Peaky Blinders, has penned the new drama for the BBC. Titled This Town, it will tell the story of an extended family and four young people who are drawn into the world of ska and two-tone music, which grew from the grassroots of Coventry and Birmingham in the late 1970s and early 80s. Unifying black, white and Haitian youths at that time, Knight previously said the series soundtrack would be sensational. Crews have been seen filming in Riley Square in Bell Green, this town will also be filmed on the streets of Birmingham and at the recently opened production studio in Digbeth. Knight, who also created SAS Rogue Heroes and Great Expectations, said, This is a project very close to my heart. It's about an era I lived through and know well, and it involves characters who I feel I grew up with. It's a love letter to Birmingham and Coventry, but I hope people from all over the world will relate to it. Both a high-octane thriller and a family saga, this town opens in 1981 at a moment of huge social tensions and unrest. Against this backdrop, it tells the story of a group of young people fighting to choose their own paths in life, each needing the second chance that music offers. Hits from Coventry Band's The Specials and The Selector will likely feature in the series. Festive fans and those who fancy a quick skate around can keep themselves smiling at a huge ice rink in Coventry City Centre. It opened its gates last Friday night and will remain open into the new year. The rink is part of the Winter Wonderland setup in Broadgate, which also includes food stalls and Christmas music to get us all in the festive spirit. All of this is bathed under the glow of Coventry's Christmas lights. It will be open seven days a week, operating throughout the day and into the evening, and only closed on Christmas Day. Prices start from £6.50 per child, with adult tickets from £7.50 for Go CV Plus cardholders. A number of Coventry Fish and Chip shops have been hailed among the best in the UK in the 2023 Good Food Awards. Customers voted for their top choices, with competition said to be unsurprisingly tough. Launched in 2002, the Good Food Awards present, uh, pre present accolades to pubs, cafes, takeaways, hotels and fish and chip shops. Only the best venues are awarded, and the decision based on votes for their food, quality, service and value. 
Satish Tandy and Govinda Dillon said they were over the moon when they found out their chip shops had been hailed among the best in the country. Govinda, 31, who runs Dillon's place with Brother Sim, said they were thrilled to have scooped the award for the third year running. He said, we're really happy considering the current climate. Sati, who owns St George's Place on Charter Avenue, said his team worked day and night to make the chip shop successful. He said, it was an achievement. It has been hard work, but we got there. When I bought the shop three years ago, it was really run down, and I managed to pick it up and get an award. A spokesman for the Good Food Awards said, with nearly 600,000 eating establishments within the UK, competition for our Good Food Awards was unsurprisingly tough. We were taken aback by the record number of entrants and votes cast by readers, customers and fans alike. It was heartwarming to see the support our winners received. Captured CCTV footage showed two men who allegedly broke into a Coventry home and made off with thousands of pounds worth of jewellery. The footage was recorded along Mitchinson Walk in Belgreen and shows the men approaching the front door of a resident's property. The camera doesn't manage to capture the alleged break-in itself, but around 30 minutes later, the men emerge from the resident's driveway and pace around the area before jumping over a nearby fence. The resident said he and his family were out for the evening and were shocked when they returned home and found their home had been raided. The victim, who does not wish to be named, said he is now fearful of his family's safety and still checks his windows at night, fearing the alleged thieves may return. He said it was terrible and very shocking considering we had moved to the area only two months ago. We relocated from the southwest. Upstairs was a mess as they had gone through our personal items. My daughter still asked me why I keep looking outside the window. The fact that it was done around 7pm shows that they fear no one, and that they weren't bothered to cover their faces also shows that they aren't afraid. The jewellery has great sentimental value, as it is inherited from generation to generation and given as presents on special occasions like child's birth and weddings. They also stole my watches and cash. Plans to build 40 new homes in Coventry have been submitted to the council. Seven Homes, the regional house builder owned by Seven Capital Group, plans to deliver brand new two, three and four bedroom homes in Kersley. The properties will be located off land between Fivefield Road and Tamworth Road and 25% of the homes will be classed as affordable housing. A planning decision for the development is expected by summer next year. Abdul Ali, Executive Director of Seven Homes, said, Following a strong year for the business and our continued expansion into key locations, we're delighted to submit planning for this latest development in Kersley. Having recently undergone significant investment, Kersley is a prime location for house hunters looking to buy in the local area. The proposed development will boast an attractive, semi-rural village location on the cusp of open countryside. It's on rival transport links to Coventry City Centre and its host of attractions offers added convenience for the buyer. With a mix of properties available, the proposed development is well equipped to meet the needs of a wide range of purchasers. 
A shoplifter was caught red-handed stealing Link's gift sets from a Coventry pharmacy. CCTV shows the man, dressed in a navy blue top and blue bottoms, walking into Stouchell Pharmacy on Baggington Road. The man is seen browsing around the items for a few minutes as he paces around the store. He then goes to a cashier and appears to ask one of the staff members a question. One of the employees then walks into the store to assist the man before walking back to the counter. The suspect lingers around, scanning items on shelves. He then picks up a couple of Lynx gift sets and rummages through his pocket. The suspect then casually walks out of the store with the stolen gift boxes under his arm. The incident happened last Friday afternoon. This is not the first time a shoplifter has been caught in the act in Coventry. One prolific shoplifter was caught stealing pants from M&S in Coventry's West Orchard Shopping Centre. He stole a £20 pair of men's underwear from the store, but he was quickly stopped by the security team. Security told the Channel 5 show about shoplifters that he was a repeat offender who had a banning order to stay away from the store. But the ban does not stop him, as he has a drug habit to feed, said one of the team but explained, he is that prolific, he has that much of a necessity to feed a habit that it doesn't matter if it is a lifetime ban, he will still come in. Four stolen cars were recovered when police raided a chop shop in Coventry. Parts thought to have been stripped from other stolen cars were also found when officers visited the premises. In a short statement on Twitter, West Midlands Police Traffic the division said, we attended a report of a chop shop in Coventry and along with Coventry Police discovered four confirmed stolen cars and many parts also suspected to be from other stolen vehicles. Both people on the site were arrested and the vehicles were all recovered. It's the second chop shop to be busted in Coventry in a matter of days. West Midlands police officers were called to premises in Avon Street, Upper Stoke, last Thursday, where they found a number of vehicles suspected stolen, including two Ford Transit vans, a BMW and a Ford Focus, along with dozens of car parts. Two men, aged 40 and 29, were arrested on suspicion of conspiracy to steal motor vehicles and later bailed. Of that raid, a West Midlands police spokesman said, We suspect this facility is very active in the storing and dismantling of stolen vehicles. Chop shops, chop shops like these provide a market for car thieves. They take in stolen cars, strip them and try to mask their identities, often within a few hours of them being taken. MasterChef star Greg Wallace lent his support for a fundraiser in aid of Coventry's baby hospice. He was the star guest at a winter ball hosted by Zoe's Place Baby Hospice Business Group. A keen supporter of Zoe's Place, the star took part in a question and answer session with guests and helped to deliver a live auction, which, together with a silent auction, raised £16,000. The sixth annual ball raised a whopping 52000 bringing the grand total raised by the business members' group to more than 400000 for the Coventry Hospice, which provides respite, palliative and end-of-life care for babies and children up to the age of five. 
The importance of the hospice was hit home by parents Tom and Lois, who shared the story of their two-year-old daughter Elsa, who has benefited from the hospice service for over a year. At just over four months old, Elsa suffered her first seizure, and having been diagnosed with epilepsy, went on to suffer up to 50 seizures a day. But she has found joy at Zoe's place, and Elsa takes part in music, animal and rebound therapies, and enjoys facilities such as the sensory room and garden, and activities including arts and crafts and music. Peter Jarvis, chairman of the business group and national patron of the Zoe's Place charity, which also has hospices in Middlesbrough and Liverpool, said he was delighted with the success of the event and members have now set their sights on hitting the half million pound target. A bubbly Coventry woman who recently celebrated her 102nd birthday says her secrets include tea, biscuits and the occasional glass of sherry. Dorothy Donegan marked her big day last Friday with an afternoon tea party. Dorothy celebrated with her niece Christine at Clarendon House Care Home in Alsley. She tucked into sandwiches, biscuits and cakes and spoke of some of her fondest childhood memories. Dorothy, who was born in Hampton and Arden, lived with her parents, three sisters and five brothers. Reminiscing about her childhood, she said, I enjoyed my life. It was a good life. We had quite a big family. Dorothy said her father taught her how to play dominoes, which she still plays to this day. She said, we used to play all sorts of games. My father was a big dominoes player and we played cards too. With Christmas approaching, Dorothy spoke of her fondest festive memories with her siblings. She said, we used to get into their bed and they used to get into ours to see what presents we'd got. I always had an apple, an orange and some chocolate biscuits. Dorothy went on to marry her beloved husband Gerald, who was born in Wales, with whom she spent 53 years before he sadly passed away. She worked at Standard Motor Company in Coventry until her son John was born. Nowadays, Dorothy likes to sit back and relax, playing board games, doing word searches and looking through magazines. She also likes to watch quiz shows on TV. She shared some of the wisdom that she has gleaned over the last century, saying, Just carry on and live a good, clean life and praise the Lord for what he's given you. And finally, seven Trent teams have created a ladder for frogs to allow them to walk or jump out of a valve chamber at Coventry's Orsley Oak Lane pumping station. Semi-aquatic animals such as frogs can fall through floor grids into valve chambers, which are holes into the ground, where Seven Trent has sewage pump valves. The Seven Trent team researched ways they could help frogs when this happened, and staff have said this has been a great success so far. Francisco Verenciano, operational technician at Seven Trent, said, We're really pleased that it's worked. The ladder has been in for two weeks at our Orsley Oak Lane site, and we've been lucky enough to watch the frogs use the ladder which was a great moment. The team are now looking at ways to help their four-legged friends in other areas of their sites where ladders wouldn't be as effective, such as introducing vertical netting. Outlook News
And uh, that is the uh, local news uh, for this week from Elaine and myself. And as ever, we move on to Ah Hugh's back this week. It was it was uh, Joe last week. Welcome back, Hugh, to tell us all about the centre. Thank you very much. Well, I haven't got an awful lot to tell you, so I'm going to uh, tell you about my mum's 90th birthday. Oh, was that where you went? For, I knew that's, you went, that's where you went last week. Yes, we went uh, went up to Scotland to celebrate yeah. my mum's 90th birthday. Good for her. And uh, you know, she's 90 and has dementia, but you know, but we you know we managed to have a bit of a party. Uh, the whole family well, yeah. yeah, it's got three brothers, so uh, all there, all there, yeah, everybody up there and one nephew and you know our various partners so it was a good a good event good. um for in scotland, she? the far southwest of scotland so uh, there's a town yeah. called wigtown which is the, the scotland's book town oh, is um, it? Oh, right. which is so it's like hay on wife for scotland right. and it's uh, yeah. rather rather is that where you hail from as well not at all no oh. no in fact <laughs> i i was born in marston green so oh, right. you know um so you she know. emigrated did she uh, yeah. yes they emigrated mum and dad emigrated up there to retire in the 90s oh, right. you know yeah. so anyway right. uh, but we're going to have to bring her back down to south, I think, you know, well, to, to well, a care home because of yeah. advanced uh, yeah. advanced health issues. So there we are. But, that's, but you only had a good, oh, good time was had by a all. A good time was had by all. Good. Um, so uh, talking of good times, the yes. winter warmer is coming up this Saturday, the 3rd of December. Now, some of you, uh, due, because of the postal strike, uh, will only be hearing about this after the event. Uh, those of you who are, you know, supremely modern and listen on the podcast on, um, on your uh, smart speaker, uh, may have a chance. Uh, so the uh, winter warmer uh, coming up this Saturday uh, from 11 o'clock till 3 o'clock, all taking place in uh, Boston Lodge. I'm uh, working my way through the menu uh, of things that I have to cook on uh, on Friday and Saturday, but uh, uh, it should be delicious. Are you, are you a bit of a Jamie Oliver? Uh, well, <laughs> uh, look, I can, you know, I can do the things that I do, uh, you know. Boil um, eggs and make tea. Well, yes, and <laughs> also make soup and scones and uh, and pulled pork for the batches oh, and right. all sorts of things. So there'll Lovely. be lo- lo- lots of delicious food there. Um, so uh, you know, we do hope to see as many of you as possible uh, there. Um, I mentioned about Christmas closing uh, in previous uh, weeks and just to remind you because we keep on reminding you every week uh, that we will be closed from the 23rd of uh, December which is the Friday, Friday so I mean we intend to be open on the on on the Friday and then close at the end of uh, end of activities on Friday but so far n- nobody's wanting to do any activities on the Friday so we may actually be closed on the Friday we'll, uh, but I'll let you know in due course anyway we will be closed um, over the Christmas period as usual uh, for the whole 10 days or so and uh, we'll be back uh, here in operation with the groups on Tuesday the 2nd of January Um, you know what we got Christmas cards. I, I was going to say, you almost forgot them. I, well, I, did, I, I didn't. Uh, they were right there, um, right there in front of my head. Uh, Christmas cards, uh, lovely designs, uh, four designs, uh, and eight cards in each pack for only £3.50. The problem is you've got to find somewhere make the stamps even cheaper than they are. That's the killer, isn't that it? That is the killer, yeah, yes. Well, of course, you know, people who are visually impaired um, can uh, use the articles for the blind ah. service. Good, good thinking, Batman. Uh, so uh, you can 
get stickers if you want from RNIB that, that talk about articles for the blind or actually all you, can, all you need to do is write articles for the blind mm. uh, on the envelope and um, off it will go and it goes first class mail if there's any ever, ma- ever any mail yep. uh, it goes first class mail and you don't have to pay uh, so that is definitely a service worth using very good point yes yeah uh, now if of course you struggle writing Christmas cards one of the things that uh, some people have liked to do here in the past is to come in to our IT sessions and uh, write their Christmas messages um, uh, on the computer and then they get stuck onto sticky labels uh, along with people's addresses so what you can do is you can come in you can write a personal message put it on the on the sticky label and uh, and stick it in your Christmas cards uh, and uh, the jobs are good and so you don't have to worry if you're, if your handwriting is a little wonky mind um, <laughs> you I ought to do that you know I'm perfectly perfectly well sighted my handwriting is a little wonky I sometimes can't read it myself so there we are um, the last thing is uh, we have a theatre trip coming up on the Tuesday the 12th of uh, December no it's Monday uh, uh, no, it's Monday Monday right okay yes so Tuesday the 13th that's right of um, December and this is pretty much your last call to take part uh, or uh, to do it I'm, I'm booking tickets at the latest on Monday and I might have to do it on Friday um, so if you want to come and see Alice um, by Laura Wade which is a modern retelling of um, Alice in Wonderland uh, and it's going to be exciting there's lots of kids in it uh, and there are um, lots of adults wearing silly costumes it's at the Criterion Theatre as ever we go down at 5 o'clock in the afternoon to do a touch tour and then uh, back up here for fish and chips before going down to the uh, theatre again for uh, 7.15 for the 7.30 start um, the minibus um, is £6 as usual and we'll drive you home afterwards I say we, it'll be me uh, and then uh, the tickets are £12.50 uh, and you can sign up with Heather. Uh, fish and chips uh, well it depends what you have so you pay for that on the day um, not everybody wants fish and chips, some people want sausage and chips and some people don't want the chips. So, anyway, there we are. Yeah. So, um, uh, this is absolutely your last call. Um, I've got eight people already on the, uh, on the, on the books. Um, might, be, might be fun. You have space in the van? In the yes, bus? well, yes, we do, just Good. about. Good, yes, so there's still there's fine. vacancies there. Yeah, there are. And uh, that, dear people, is it, I think, for this week. I don't think I've got anything else for you just for the moment. I'll try and think of something new to say next week. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, we, we can say about the post causing chaos for no. these people in this programme. It does, yes. So uh, we apologise for. Uh, now, thank you, Hugh, for what's going on at the centre. Uh, all I've got to tell you about is the usual thing, the depressing bit about how little daylight we now get, because the sun doesn't rise until 7.49 and it disappears dead on four o'clock and it's probably even earlier with the cloudy skies we've got at the moment too. It's miserable. Yes, absolutely. So now we move on to uh, what is some people's favourite and other people's ha- hated thing, that is sport and here's Sarah. Outlook Sport Welcome on, bienvenue, welcome, but not to cabaret to sport. Right, I'll start off with some quite amazing news. Coventry City have a new owner subject to EFL approval. After years of City fans calling for Sisu to give up and go, they kind of have, 
Well, okay, the new owner, somebody called Doug King, who is a multi-millionaire from the Stratford area, I believe he made his millions in petroleum. It's quite strange because I haven't seen many oil fields in Stratford recently. Anyway, he owns 85% and Sisu still own 15%. And at the same time, the CBS Arena has a new owner, the House of Fraser Group, chaired by, as I said last week, Mike Ashley. And it includes not just the House of Fraser, but Sports Direct, and go outdoors, I believe, and probably many others. So just think of all the shirt names we could have. Sadly, it does mean that the club is still owned by a different owner to the stadium. But with Mike having previously owned Newcastle United Football Club, I'm reasonably confident. Doug did put in an, a bid for the CBS Arena, but it was too late. But that news about the city having a new owner literally came out the blue. It was one of these, am I hearing this correct, moments when they announced it on Midlands Today. But yes, 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 I sure was. Now, meanwhile, on the pitch, there were no Coventry City matches because of the World Cup. City won't be playing again until Boxing Day. And also, coincidentally, Coventry Rugby Football Club weren't playing either. But on the pitch with our lower team, non-league as they're called, although it's rather strange because they all have their own leagues. Sides, Leamington took on Peterborough and I bet they wish they hadn't because they lost two goals to nil. Stratford played Royston and drew one all. That was rather funny, actually, because I checked their Facebook site and it said the Bairds, which I know are Stratford, play the Crows. And it's like, yeah, but I don't know who the Crows are. But anyway, it's somewhere called Royston and they drew 1-1, as also did Nuneaton and Tamworth with a 1-1 draw. But sadly, Coventry United lost to Histon, one goal to two. But that was actually better than Coventry United women, who on Sunday went to Tottenham Hotspur. Yes, the big club in London, in the Women's FA Cup. But sadly were thumped five goals to one. Oh, well, at least you got a consolation goal in, I believe, the 91st minute. But back in the non-league, Ainsbury Rovers lost to Rugby Town one goal to two. So rugby are really doing well at the top of that division. And I'd like to give you an update on Racing Club Warwick, but they haven't updated their Facebook site yet. And not being able to access printed material, I rely on my Facebook. And now I'm going to read an extract from a book I found recently. The Secret Diary of an England Football Fan, 
aged 58 and a third. Entry for, oh, November the 25th, 2022. It all began so well the day had. I heard the pogues on the radio. Christmas can now really begin. You know, the pogues, it's that one about the fairy tale in New York and the bells ringing out. Christmas is definitely coming. Them Wales lost. Still, they are our opposition. It was unfortunate, though. You've got to hand it to them. They'd held out against the Iranians until injury time when, following the sending off of their goalie, they succumbed to two goals. Never mind, it'll be easier for England. OK, the real match is coming at 7pm. England versus the US. I switch on at about 6.30 to hear the commentators reminding me that England had never beaten the US at the World Cup. Hmm, but amidst the waffle they focus on a player of ours called Jude Bellingham. Now you've probably never heard of him. He plays in Germany but he's almost a local lad. Well, he's a brummy anyway. He was brung up football-wise and cultivated by the Birmingham City Academy and indeed played a season for Birmingham. Then the commentators focus on the One Love armband. You know, the one that Harry Kane and other captains were going to wear in mark of their respect for the LGBT community. But apparently... Two hours before kickoff, five officials from FIFA, the governing body, came and gave them the ultimatum that they would all be subject to disciplinary action and an immediate yellow card if they did so. Hmm, football's a game for everyone, is it, FIFA? Cue the anthems. Now I'm getting kind of accustomed to God Save the King, though I still send her victorious, happy and glorious. 7pm, kick-off time. Lots of England near misses. Oh my gosh, the United States nearly scored twice. Come on England, so near yet so far. Now it's half time. Time for a coffee and a glass of red, I think, to calm the nerves. Come on, England! Side two kicks off. I'm getting really edgy now at nil-nil. It can go either way so easily and so quickly. Come on, guys. One little goal, that's all I need. Just one little kick of that round ball into the net. Please, I couldn't hold this coffee mug much tighter without giving myself third degree burns. Oh gosh, the United States are on the break. The commentator says, there's danger here for England. Fortunately, 
Not when you have a goalie like Jordan Pickford. Come on, England! United States have three successive corners. My stomach can't take much more of this. Oh no, a fourth corner. The commentator says he just feels that they'll be scoring from one of these soon. But please, not that one. Come on, England. There must be something wrong. The England players have the ball and they keep kicking it towards that goal thing. But the horrible American goalie keeps kicking it back at them. Come on, England. Right now, I think I'd settle for nil-nil draw. Ah, we've called up the cavalry now. We've got the substitutes on, including Jack Grimish, who used to play for Villa, but I suppose he's sort of local. And Marcus Rashford, ah, he'll, he'll score a few. He'll soon show on. Come on, England! England have a set piece quite near the goal line. Can they score? No. Even the commentators are now talking about a draw. Four minutes injury time. Will that be the time we score or the time we give in? Come on, England, please. England have a free kick quite near the goal. And it's going... Oh, so near but so far. Final whistle. Well, that's 94 minutes of my life I'll never get back. But at least we can look forward to Tuesday and I think I'll get some stomach settling tablets. Come on, England. Sarah, with all the difference of view on sport that we used to have years ago, uh, but all, all the more interesting, I think, because of it. Uh, from sport, we move to your sport point in the uh, programme. That's Postbag, and here's Dave. This is Postbag. Join in the discussion. Hello there, and welcome to your postbag this week. First of all, I'd like to ask you to send in your Christmas greetings or songs and poetry or any Christmassy pieces in as soon as possible, please, so I can compile them for our Christmas special edition of Outlook. You can leave a message on our studio phone answer machine by ringing 024-76-717-522 and pressing 5 for Coventry Talking Newspaper. You can send a card or a letter written by yourself or someone on your behalf. Send an email to postbag at talkingnewspaper.org.uk that no one seemed to have used for years, but maybe you can be the first... Uh, or you can phone me up on 02476598484 on, or an email to davidmonksahotmail.com. Plenty of ways to spread a bit of Christmas cheer and to communicate with your fellow listeners. 
Now, Graham Wales starts it off this week by telling us about the future move of a very helpful and friendly shopability shop. If you don't know already, they are moving shop mobility uh, from the barracks car park to Salt Lane sometime in the new year. This is to make way for the demolishment of the barracks car park because of the um, city centre south development. That is a bigger development than I realised. It's going to take 10 years to finish. I hope I'm still around to uh, see what it's like when it's finished. Thank you, Graham. Do you use the shop mobility shop? Let us know what sort of things that uh, you buy from it or use it for. Well, Julia has a tale about shopping abroad and smuggling it in through the customs, but keep this information under your hat, or in the heel of your boot, perhaps. Uh, Julia writes, who knows what a peperomia is? Nobody. Well, stick around, they'll tell you. It all goes back to last May when I was in Spain with my sisters. They wanted to buy me something a bit different, so we went to a hippie market. But they didn't buy me a hippie. They found me a tiny plant in a magnet with a ladybird on it. It had dark green leaves that felt like velvet. But how could we smuggle it through the airport and get it home? My sisters are very clever and know a bit about smuggling. They cut a bottle to hold the plant and I put it in my bag and nobody knew when we went through the airport. My brother didn't believe it was a plant. We stuck it on the boiler and now it's two inches tall. Uh, The plant, that is, not my brother. So that's my plant, the peperomia. Maybe it will grow into a beanstalk and I will climb up it and find a chocolate factory at the top. I do hope so. Julia, that sounds a bit like Jack and the Beanstalk. That's going to be at the Belgrade this year. Great. Uh, Thank you, Julia. Back to Graham Whale, who's got a nice comment to make about John Vale's report on his visit to Heartbeat Country, which was really good. It was interesting to hear John's story about uh, visiting Haydensfield, Heartbeat Country. Uh, yes, they're running on the B, uh, sorry, ITV3 at the moment. They went right back to the beginning in March and they've gone right through the series I think they must have had about 280 episodes um, so far they they go out twice a day and um, yeah it's very easy to get hooked on the program actually Um, probably secondary not not quite so much of the archers but um, the archers are a lot more accurate things happen in the archers like characters get kicked off um, kick the bucket probably more than once occasion and uh, the loyal listener is quite, uh, you know, soon takes it up. So the program makers have to be accurate because any mistakes will be spotted. Not so with Heartbeat. Things happened and they're not explained. I still don't know what happened to Burnham's script. It was just written out of the script. Um, Oscar Blayton made some remark when uh, Peggy Armstrong moved in to the cottage with uh, Dave Caldwell, that uh, she can't do that because it belongs to Vernon. 
the Burnham is just gone. Come to think of it, I'm not too clear who is actually responsible for the pub. Some episodes Oscar is, and other episodes Gina is. Um, you know, these things are soon spotted to those of us who listen regular, and uh, it certainly wouldn't go down with the uh, archers if uh, <laughs> things like that happen. Uh, but yeah, uh, it's an interesting point. It's not too difficult to follow, you know. It's a short hour, and they're not too complicated. Um, but I didn't realise there was such a place as Aidensfield. I thought the place was fictional, as well as the uh, as well as the series. But uh, yeah, that was quite interesting. Thank you, Graham. It's nice when listeners' efforts get some good response. Thank you, John, for starting to send in your reports. I can always find room for your messages and anybody else's. Thank you. And now we have original listener Doreen Hilton with some nice things to say about a club she recently joined. It is nice at the Monday Club, and it's nice to know that the few times I have been there, I noticed you do um, different kinds of activities. Um, the activities um, do come useful also to the centre and the staff and to keep things ticking over and to be happy and genuine and nice to one another. You pick up nice friends with one another and have a little chat and different people come from the different organisations. Um, I think you're doing well. Um, I hope, Dave, and I hope the other people too go there. Um, I believe we're all, you know, happy for what you do. And um, I think it's, that's a nice way to be. Um, so all I'll say, um, Doreen says here, keep up the good work and keep the work going in good spirit. And I don't think we'll, we'll all go far wrong. Finally, I'm happy to say, we have another piece from John Vale. This time, a report on a concert at the Methodist Central Hall. Here's John. It was a, a visit I went to at the Coventry Central Hall, and it was a, a group of people from the, the city of Coventry culture. It was an orchestra made up of, of, of what, what appeared to be loads of people and uh, other groups and um, they had an African dance and drum performance a Friday's Youth Club Choir a choir with no name Queen Bee who was the compare City Council Adult Education Dance and then there were some singers um, a world song were a choir that sang before us and then there were poetry several poems written by people which was really interesting um, written by Anna Atkins at the beginning and um, there was a poet at the towards the end it was a wonderful afternoon three and a half hours of entertainment uh, sorry left with a, a very break with tea and coffee that was supplied by the church, which was lovely. And it was really, really good. It was a wonderful afternoon. And um, it's amazing. The Circle of Life, um, written by Elton John for the film The Lion King, was the, um, at the end of the program. 
and all the acts joined in to uh, to, to sing it and play and uh, dance it, and it was really, really great. It's a wonderful uh, experience, to be honest with you. We were all round tables, and uh, there were some other chairs as well, but we were round tables, so it was informal, and it was great. The next um, uh, event is going to be carol service on the 18th of December at 2 o'clock, which is free, and it will be a really wonderful afternoon. Seth Farrell is the orchestra leader, and he did a fantastic job of coordinating everybody together. Um, he's a young man whose music is his, is his life, and uh, incidentally, he's also the senior choir leader at the Salvation Army. But he does a wonderful job of coordinating all these things together, and uh, it's a, a great thing to, I want to say thank you to him, because it's good that there are people that are prepared to put these sort of things on. So, there we are. It was a bit of a, an ex different experience, and all that, believe it or not, was £4 admission for, under, for old age pensioners. So that wasn't bad for an afternoon, was it? We got that back in tea and coffee, to be honest. Well, thank you, John. That was great. Keep them coming in, please, your reports. They're really fantastic. Thank you. And so, thank you for you, your messages this week. And please let's hear from you next time. And don't forget your Christmas greetings for our special festive edition of Outlook. And remember, the next concert at the Methodist Central Hall is 2 p.m. on the 18th of December. That's a carol concert. And thank you for your inquiries about Sheila's health. She is much better, and I'm hoping to be getting her out and about soon. And here's Sheila to say hello to you. Hello, hello, hello. Okay, so thank you, Sheila, and thank you for your comments this week. Please let's hear from you next time with, of course, your Christmas greetings as well. Okay, bye-bye. Outlook is produced by Community Broadcasting Services. Thanks, Dave, for post back, and now we go to one of the oldest pubs in Coventry, the Golden Cross, with Margaret. Edward IV opened a mint in Coventry on the 6th of July 1465 during his great national recoinage. There is nothing that tells us where it stood, only a tradition that says it was on the site of the Golden Cross. The only chronicler who mentioned it was Leyland, who said, There was a parliament and a mint of coinage at Coventry. Thomas Sharp, the Coventry historian, wrote in 1806 that he had not discovered a trace of this mint in any other document. But for the existence of the coins, he said, we should be utterly ignorant that Coventry ever possessed the privilege of coining. This is true, for there are gold and silver coins from the reign of Edward IV, 
bearing the sea of Coventry mint under the king's head and the words Civitas Coventry. The tradition that the cross was on the site of the mint dates from the beginning of the 19th century. The inn's original name wasn't the Golden Cross. It is likely to have been the Royal Exchange that was mentioned in March 1693, although that could have stood on the opposite corner. Its existence, however, could have left us with the connection as the Royal Exchange is associated with money. The building was later the dog and duck mentioned by Hewitt in 1756 as a billet for soldiers. In 1770, Thomas Higgins changed the name to the Cross Guns, and in 1773, he based on a memory, he, he took the same name with him, sometime after the name Golden Cross appears. So, it is the name based on the memory of the Royal Exchange? The answer lies here. For a decree of Edward IV, dated the 16th of September 1465, states that Hugh Boyce will control the king's mints and exchanges in Bristol, Norwich and Coventry. Mints could also house exchanges. The earliest mention that can be found of the Golden Cross name is when Richard Farmer was the landlord in 1818. In April 1825, Thomas Smith left a horse in its stables and tried to sell it to a butcher in Jordan Well for five pounds. It seemed the horse didn't belong to him as he was tried at the county hall next door and received the death sentence. In 1865, we know from another trial that the cross still had its stables for an ostler worked here named Henry Sly. In 1867, it is described as an old established house. The pub was restored in the 1880s using timber taking out of the roof and bell frame of St Michael's during its simultaneous restoration. Through most of the 20th century, it was a regular watering hole for the barristers of the county hall. Its opening hours have been sketchy in recent years. However, In January 2017, after a refurb, the Golden Cross, possibly the oldest pub in Coventry, reopened its doors. The Golden Cross must be a pub which everyone knows, and I would guess that nearly everyone has used it at some time or other. Do you remember those postmasters in the Old Westerns tapping out their Morse coded messages? And then later there were the post office messenger boys on their red bikes, or sometimes red motorbikes, hand-delivering telegrams with the all-important communique printed in capitals on those strips of paper. Well, those were the humble beginnings leading to today's WhatsApp and Twitter, and Neil Clark's article, read by Bill, takes a look at the original messaging service and wonders if a comeback might be due. Instant communication is something we all take for granted. High-tech apps allow us to send messages anywhere in the world in a matter of seconds. But before smartphones, apps and the internet, if a missive was urgent or important, we sent telegrams. At least, that's what we did from 1843 to 1982. The telegram service grew out of developments 
in the field of electric telegraphy and revolutionised high-speed communication. It was the pioneering inventors of 19th century Britain who led the way. The first commercial electric telegraph was patented by William Fothergill Cook and Professor Charles Wheatstone in May 1837. Their double-needle system used markers on a board that could be moved point to letters. The extension of the railway network provided the stimulus for the equally rapid development of telegraphy. The need for some means of communication faster, not merely than the horse, but than the train itself, came clear, explained author A.L. Keeve. In May 1843, the world's first paid public telegraph service opened on completion of the 20-mile Great Western Railway Telegraph Line from London Paddington to Slough in Berkshire. Flat fee per telegram was one shilling, five pence, irrespective of the number of words. People could send their messages from telegraph offices at either terminus. Teams of uniformed messengers delivered the telegrams to any address in London, Windsor, Eton, Slough or surrounding districts. The first telegram ever shared with newspapers was sent from Windsor Castle in 1844, informing the world of the birth of a son, Prince Alfred, Queen Victoria. From this embryonic, localised service, the system soon became a national one. By September 1847, the northern and southern telegram network had been established. They were connected in November that year, meaning you could now send a telegram from Dover to Edinburgh. Then, in 1858, after the completion of the Atlantic Cable, a transatlantic service was introduced. At one pound a word, it didn't come cheap, though unsurprisingly, the first telegram to the US was succinct. Businessman John Cash, his message to his company's representative in New York, simply said, Go to Chicago. In 1870, operation of the UK Telegram Service came under control of the General Post Office. In the early days, domestic rates depended on the distance, but from 1870, payment became word-based, again encouraging brevity, long before Twitter and its character limits. The charge was one shilling for the first 20 words, then three old pennies, for each additional five words or part thereof. There were no smileys or other emojis. The symbols could be used. For being concise, it's hard to beat the alleged exchange between French novelist Victor Hugo in Exile in Guernsey and his publisher of the sales of Les Miserables. Hugo's telegram read, question mark. The publisher replied, Exclamation mark. Despite its limitations, telegrams became so popular that by 1913, a staggering 82 million 
were being sent in Britain each year. Service worked simply and efficiently. In larger post offices, telegram desks were provided with special dispensers to hold the blank forms, with the instruction, write your telegrams here. Forms were handed in with payment to a cashier, and the message would be transmitted along telegraph wires to the nearest telegraph office to the intended address. The telegram would be taken from the office by teams of uniformed delivery boys, at first on foot or bicycle, later by motorcycle. In 1910, there were 14,000 telegram delivery boys employed by the GPO, many of whom had entered the service straight after leaving school at 14. Important events in the history of the world were announced by telegram, or cable, as the technology came to be known in the US. It was by cable the Wright brothers announced to their father they had made the world's first sustained and controlled flight in a powered aircraft, Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, in 1903. Success four flights Thursday morning, all against 21-mile wind, the telegram began. Telegrams changed world history. In his book, The Victorians, A.N. Wilson notes how telegraphy played a crucial role in the establishment of the British Empire and also its maintenance. It helped administrators quell local uprisings and enable those in London to keep in touch with colleagues in authority in the far-flung outposts. And next week Bill concludes his article starting back at the beginning of the First World War. In only a few weeks' time, of course, it'll be Christmas. And one of the indicators is that all those piled-high purple boxes of Quality Street, still one of the nation's favourites. Everyone also has their own favourite, whether it's purple, green, blue, gold, pink or red wrapping. And here's Sheila to tell you more in an article written by Harry Wallop in Sunday Times. For the past 86 years, one thing has united families around the Christmas tree – rows about Quality Street. The scandalous axing of the coffee cream, the shrinking tub sizes, the glut of toffee pennies. But one thing has remained constant, the wrappers. Ever since Harold, later Viscount Mackintosh, launched Quality Street in 1936, they have come wrapped in silver foil and a second layer of brightly coloured seafood plastic. It is a distinctive form of packaging that creates a rustle and sparkle as you dig in, seeking another caramel swirl. No more. Nestle, the owner of Quality Street, is scrapping the wrappers in favour of a form of waxed paper to make its packaging recyclable. The decision is intended to stop two billion wrappers a year being thrown into landfill. Consumers will start to notice the change in the coming weeks. Alex Hutchinson, a chocolate historian who used to be the official archivist at Rantree Macintosh, said, It's a huge deal, and it's a bit sad. Because when Howard Macintosh originally launched Quality Street, he specifically designed it to be an explosion of colour, different flavours, different shapes. The wrapping was the absolute key. She said the success of the brand rested in part on the packaging, which hid the fact that the actual sweets were very cheap. 
quality street was for working class families and it was mainly toffees made of cheap British ingredients. Toffee was much more affordable than chocolate which was exotic and expensive. The toffees were covered by just a thin layer of chocolate but they made up for this by ensuring that when you opened the tin there was a riot, a festival of textures, sounds and colours. The new wrappers keep their distinctive colours. The hazelnut in caramel is in a purple paper, the coconut eclair in blue, the fudge in pink and so on. But the sparkle of the plastic wrappers has been replaced by a paper that is neither fully matte nor fully shiny. The paper has a slight sheen from a lacquer and the ink's pigment, while the paper is coated with a vegetable-based wax which protects the chocolates on the inside. Cheryl Allen, Head of Sustainability at Nestle Confectionery, says the company thought long and hard before making such a change. Quality Street is a brand that people feel very strongly about. We know that opening the lid and seeing the jewels, as we call them, is really important. We think we've done a really good job with the redesign and feel confident that people will respond positively. This is not the first attempt to make Quality Street wrappers more environmentally friendly. In 2008, Nestle started producing the plastic outer wrappers from a compostable cellulose, but the company admits only a tiny number of consumers bothered to dispose of them with their potato peelings. Every year, about 1.7 billion Quality Street jewels are eaten in Britain, the equivalent of about 63 per household. It is a gluttony that helped create a fortune for the Macintosh family, which includes Millie Macintosh, aged 33, the maid in Chelsea's song, who was the great-niece of Harold. The company was sold to Nestle in 1988, but the sweets are still made at their original home in Halifax, West Yorkshire. Because the green triangle and the orange chocolate crunch already come wrapped in just coloured foil, which is recyclable, their packaging will remain unchanged. Robert Opie, founder of the Museum of Brands, says there is such a strong association between the packaging and the product, so every brand owner should be wary of making changes. But it looks as if Quality Street have made a fairly determined effort to make the new wrappers as similar as possible as the old. And we do need to save the planet. So what's your favourite? Or maybe it's like you write something very different. Tell us about it in Postbag. Thomas Cubitt, not a familiar name, started out as a humble carpenter, but his skills impressed Prince Albert. 150 years after he gave Buckingham Palace a makeover, Queen Camilla takes centre stage on his most famous creation, as told by Sue from this article in the Daily Express, written by James Murray. Queen Consort Camilla has become a familiar sight on the Buckingham Palace balcony over recent years, as she's gradually consolidated her position as a central figure in the royal family. Whether acknowledgingly cheering crowds or admiring a fly-past, she now looks thoroughly at home, taking centre stage beside King Charles in one of the most photographed locations in the world. But it can now be revealed she has every right to feel so comfortable on this historic balcony, as it was built by one of her ancestors. When Prince Albert, Queen Victoria's husband, gave the palace a makeover in 1845, he commissioned Thomas Cubitt, Camilla's great-great-great-grandfather, 
to construct the imposing architectural feature. Since then, the balcony has been the backdrop for a host of historic moments. It was there that Prime Minister Winston Churchill joined the royal family to celebrate VE Day and the ending of the Second World War in May 1945. Two years later, huge crowds gathered to cheer the newly married Princess Elizabeth and her bridegroom, Prince Philip. Their son, Prince Charles, repeated the scene in 1981 when he kissed his bride, Lady Diana Spencer, to ecstatic applause. In August 2000, the Queen Mother, flanked by her daughters Elizabeth and Margaret, appeared on the balcony to mark her 100th birthday. In recent years, royal fans have thrilled to balcony moments, featuring William and Kate, our new Prince and Princess of Wales, and their children George, Charlotte and Louis. Most recently, the balcony was the setting for one of the key moments of the late Queen's 70-year reign, when in June she acknowledged the acclamation of her people on the occasion of her Platinum Jubilee, assisted by hilarious face-pulling during the RAF flypast by young Prince Louis. Just a few feet away stood Camilla, who had been denied her own wedding balcony moment when she married Charles in 2005 in a low-key civil ceremony at Windsor. The Queen did not attend, although she was there for the following service of prayer and dedication at Windsor Castle. Now the new Queen Consort will be a regular fixture on her ancestors' creation. Labourer's son, Thomas Cubitt, was born in a Buxton, Norfolk in 1788. A report from a Victorian newspaper said of Thomas, he was thrown upon his own resources in early youth and never had the benefit of a regular education. Yet, through a clear head, steady perseverance and strict integrity, he rose rapidly into public notice, lived a useful and laborious life and died a millionaire. Young Thomas became a journeyman carpenter, moving from place to place touting his skills, and discovered he had a natural ability to build with stone and wood. To better his fortunes, he travelled to India as a ship's carpenter, and saved enough money to set up a small building business in London. He quickly gained a reputation for building grand mansions, while treating his workers well. His first major project in 1815 was building the London Institution in Finsbury Circus. The Duke of Bedford and other landowners hired him to build stylish homes in Tavistock Square and Gordon Square. His growing reputation attracted the attention of Queen Victoria, and Cubitt was commissioned to work with Prince Albert on the royal couple's new home, Osborne House on the Isle of Wight. In 1845, Queen Victoria told Prime Minister Robert Peel she needed more space for entertaining at Buckingham Palace, so a new wing to enclose the forecourt was designed. Prince Albert suggested it have a balcony, and said he knew just the man to oversee it, 
Thomas Cubitt. In his illustrious career, Cubitt introduced revolutionary working practices in the building industry, skills the royal family put to good use. Cubitt's loyal tradesmen were employed full-time on settled rates of pay, working from a site right by the River Thames. When a blaze destroyed the works in 1854, he gave his distressed workers money to replace their tools. Queen Victoria was first recorded making an appearance on the Cubitt balcony in 1851 to mark the opening of the Great Exhibition, starting a tradition which continues to this day. When Victoria learned of his death in 1855, aged 68, she said, He is a real national loss. A better, kind-hearted or more simple, unassuming man never breathed. And in 1892, the grateful Queen granted a peerage to his surviving family. By the time of his death, Thomas Cubitt was one of the richest men in the country, with an estate worth more than a million pounds, the equivalent to a hundred and nineteen million pounds today. He died at his Surrey mansion, Denbys, which he bought in 1850, knocked down and rebuilt in the style of Osborne House. One of his children, Camilla's great-great-grandfather, became Conservative MP for West Surrey, a member of the Privy Council, and was ele elevated to the House of Lords in 1892 as Baron Ashcombe of Dorking. Camilla's great-grandmother, Alice Keppel, was the youngest child of Sir William Edmonston, fourth baronet, and she famously became the long-term mistress and confidant of King Edward VII. Royal expert Rose Staveley Wadham says of the family link to Buckingham Palace, This is an incredible connection through time. Thomas Cubitt's life is a true tale of talent and grit. We know his father died when Thomas was only 18, and perhaps it was being thrust into the world to fend for himself at such an early age that cultivated Thomas's resilience and determination to succeed. Despite having little education or funds, he was able to set himself and his family up extremely well, paving the way for subsequent generations of his ancestors to become members of the aristocracy, and Queen Consort Camilla to become royalty herself. It's fitting that she now stands on the very stones that he built. There are so many famous and glorious artefacts in the royal houses which King Charles has vowed to make more open and accessible to all of us. It may be cold and wintry outside, but it's good to think back to the summer days earlier in the year. John Lewis Temple, on a warm summer evening in June, gives an account of shearing his neighbour's sheep from this article in Country Life magazine, read by Elaine. I stopped by the copse where the track enters the trees on the lightest evening of the year. Even at 10pm I could see clear across the quiet valley, the breeze stirring the creamy barley and the thirsty brown cattle drinking from the trough in the meadow. The hay had just been cut, 
the bales stacked in towers, and the mown ground glowed as if lit from underneath. Getting out of the car, the pale sky was gentle and warm, and it seemed to me then that winter never had been and never would be again. In the perpetual twilight of midsummer, the shadows of the four black sheep shifted restlessly in their pen under the verge-side oak. Disturbed by my arrival, a tawny owl flew out of the tree and looked at me quizzically with its heart-shaped face. I was late, but I had a commitment to keep. My neighbour, who is of a certain vintage, had asked if I could shear her four sheep. They had been troubled by the heat, and the professional shearer she had booked had postponed. From the boot of the car I took a plywood board a yard square, and a pair of metal hand shears. It had not seemed worth the trouble of looking up a generator for the Lister electric shears, not for four sheep. I set down the board on the grass of the verge away from the oak, and the grass whispered under the weight of the descending wood. There was no other noise except for the clickety-click of cricket song. Their rhythmic chanting seemed a sort of cheerleading. The metal bars of the small pen had retained the heat of the day and were sultry on my hand. I opened the gate and pulled the first ewe out. The spiral horns of the Hebridean are a butting vein, but equally they are useful handles in handling. In the half-light I sat the little ewe down on her rump on the board against my legs, snipped down her front around her neck then lent her over slightly to begin the shearing of her back. The shears went clickety-click in unison with the song of the crickets. My sweeping forearm and the shears became one thing, and the fleece lifted like scythed foam. The lanolin in the used black wool glittered as bright as polish. My arrival must have surprised and suppressed the birds of the dark wood, for they now started calling, despite the lateness of the hour. There was song thrush, robin, willow warbler and wren, all pleasant in their polyphony. When I had finished the little ewe, I put her in the field, but she hung around as close to the others as she could. I started on you number two, and the shears were flashing. In the dreamy demi-light, the glorious smell of wool lifted on the air, and I recalled childhood seaside holidays in Keridigion, wearing hand-knitted jumpers, and my father's beige gardening cardigan, with its elbow patches and pocket of pipe tobacco. By you three, I was sweating and my back ached, and I recalled I had a generator and electric shears. I began shuffling around on the board. 
The shuffle and drum of my feet added to the twilight sound of the clickety-click of the shears and the crickets and the nocturnes of the birds. But my hands were baby-soft due to the buttery lanolin in the deep black fleeces. I looked up at the silver dome of the sky. One or two stars had turned on and there was a slip of moon rising over the blue hills. The white flowers of the wild rose in the rambling hedge behind me were my torches. In the owl light, the tawny flew back to the tree and scowled at me from behind the leaves. I was halfway down the back of you three when my eyes bleared with sweat and I started shearing my feel. Following the warm topography of the ewe's body, the mountain ridge of the spine and the fat valley slope of the belly. It felt authentic and I remembered a visit to an ancient shearing barn on a Welsh mountainside where the men had sat to shear in stalls in gloom. Half blinded, they too must have been guided by the sense of touch as well as of sight. The little ewe relaxed in my hands. The clickety-click of the hand shears was hypnotising in a way that the brutal buzz of the listers never would be. White moths swirled around my head. Down after the moths came nocturnal bats as big as birds, sweeping with the speed of stone. The displaced air from the bat's leathery wings fanned my face. But it was not enough. By you four, the great phrase of farming was looping in my head. Will I finish it, or will it finish me? The cricket sang clickety-click as staunchly as ever. The clickety-click of the shears persisted. And then I detected the clickety-click of the bats. To hear the echolocation sound of bats is usually the privilege of children, denied to the coarsened ears of adults. I suppose because the nocturnes were so close and the dreamy midsummer night so still that I, for the first time in more than thirty years, heard the talking of the bats. The skill of sheep shearing, where the fleece is of so little value, but the wool is such a wonderful material. We're going to bring this programme to an end this week with another short story by Cynthia Townsend, read by Ali, called Things That Go Bump in the Night. It was banned in our house. My mother didn't like us playing with it, so we had to get rid of it. My friend Tracy, however, retrieved it from our bin and took it home and hid it under her bed. What am I talking about? It was a Ouija board that Waddington's bought out in the 1960s. A friend of my mother's had bought it for us at Christmas, much to my mother's disgust. She didn't like it and didn't want it in the house. She didn't want to appear ungrateful, after all it was a gift, but she had a loathing for this board and kept it for years in its box on top of the wardrobe. As what happens when you have kids that are at home 
and left to their own devices during the holidays. They go on the rampage and start rooting around the house for things to play with and mischief to get up to. It was my little brother who decided to have a good look on top of Mum's wardrobe to see what he could drag down to play with. He remembered she'd stored some jigsaw puzzles up there, as well as a spare buckaroo and an old frustration game, so he duly started bringing all of the boxes down. Standing on the chair that normally sat in front of the dressing table, he stretched himself as much as he could to get his fingertips onto the boxes. Wobbling underneath him, the chair wasn't safe, and he managed to whisk all the boxes onto the carpeted floor below before he lost his balance and dropped to the floor himself. One of the boxes that came down was the one with a Ouija board in it. My brother paid particular interest to this, as he hadn't seen it before. When we first had it, my mum took it off as soon as it was opened. I got a glance at it, but my brother didn't, so this was a whole new box to him. You'd better put it back, I said to him. Mum won't want us playing with this, she doesn't like it. Well, I won't tell her if you don't, was his reply, and Julie took it into his bedroom to have a good look at it. He wasn't that impressed. It was just a piece of wood with letters and numbers on it, and a bit of plastic by the side of it. No fun. He called me into his room. So what do you do with this, sis? I told him I wasn't sure, but by Mum's reaction to it, I didn't really want to know. I was already in her bad books by breaking one of her Queen Victoria Diamond Jubilee plates a few weeks earlier. I couldn't afford to get in bother again so soon. Apparently, Waddington's decided to reintroduce the quaint Victorian pastime of attempting to communicate with the dead as a harmless game of fun for children. The Ouija board had been popular since the 19th century, and this up-to-date version was a key ingredient of any good teenage sleepover. 1968 Waddington's version was to sell in toy shops around the UK. My brother got the booklet out of the box and read the instructions. It said, This board contains the words yes, no and goodbye, and set out in three lines are the letters of the alphabet and the numbers 0 to 9. It is operated by two people who place their fingers on a heart-shaped stand which in the centre has a round glass window. Together the two people can explore the telepathy and seek advice of those in another world. Ooh, sounds like fun, said my brother. But what other world are they talking about? Out of space? Don't be silly, I said. It means the spirit world. You know where dead people go. Just as I said that, my brother's bedroom window slammed shut, making the handle rattle as it hit the wooden frame. But there'd been no gust of wind and no reason for the window to shut fast like it did. I don't like the sound of this, I said. Put it back in its box. My brother refused and started pushing the little plastic thing around the board and asking stupid questions like, is there anybody there? If there is, can you magic up some chocolate and a can of pop? I wasn't keen on continuing this and told him to put it away as Mum would be home soon and she wouldn't be best pleased to see us with it. 
and just as I said that, our mum appeared in the bedroom. I'd never seen her so angry. She told us to put the contents of the box back and said we'd never see it again. A few days later, my friend Tracy came over to show me her new, co her new coat. It was a really nice coat, a lovely shade of blue, with a lighter blue fur collar. I was telling her about what happened the other day with the Ouija board. Where is it now? she asked. I told her that Mum had taken it away and put it in the bin. And that's the last time we spoke about it. Until that fateful night, two months later. Tracy had taken the Ouija board out of the bin and taken it to her house and hid it. Her parents were even stricter than ours when it came to suitable play material and they were regular churchgoers and wouldn't approved of the game. Tracy wasn't easily spooked and managed to get her little sister and brother to play with it. They put the lights off in the room and lit a candle to add to the atmosphere and sat on the floor cross-legged and put their hand on the little triangle and asked if there was anybody there. The little indicator started to move vigorously across the board, going at a fast pace, spelling out the phrases, You're not alone, you're not alone, you're not alone. And then there was a massive bang, like somebody had been shot. Tracy jumped up in terror and knocked the candle on the table, and it went near to some sheets of paper they'd been drawing on earlier. I don't like this anymore, she said, let's pack it up. However, the candle had started to burn the papers on the table, and in no time at all, a fire had started, and try as they might, they couldn't put it out. They all ran downstairs, screaming, Fire! Fire! Their mother quickly called the fire brigade, and their dad went upstairs and shut the door to limit the fire getting to the rest of the house. Luckily, the fire station wasn't too far away, and they were there within about ten minutes. The bedroom, however, was gutted and the fire had spread to the landing and the bathroom, but it could have been a lot worse. The bang that had spooked them when they were on the Ouija board was no one being shot, but the sound of a car backfiring. When my mum heard what had happened, she was sad. She knew that Ouija board was bad news, that's why she didn't want it in our house. She was upset that this had happened to Tracy, and wish she'd have taken the Ouija board to the tip and not put it in our bin so it couldn't have been retrieved. We still got told off for getting us off the wardrobe in the first place, and we vowed never again to play with things that we didn't know the power of in this world or the next. So that brings us to the end of this week's edition of Outlook, and with that it's goodbye from me, Nigel Hewing. <laughs>